Welcome to the Hutchmoot Podcast, brought to you by the Rabbit Room Podcast Network. If you're wondering what in the world a Hutchmoot is, you are not alone. Let me give you the short version. Hutchmoot is an annual arts conference hosted by the Rabbit Room in which we gather people together around art, music, story, and faith. If you want the long version, check out the website at hutchmoot.com, where all of your questions, or at least some of them, will be answered. Michelangelo's David is widely regarded as one of the most perfect works of art ever achieved. But the artist himself was neither the first nor the last to make his mark upon that famed piece of marble. In this episode, Russ Ramsey explores the story behind this magnificent sculpture and reveals how our longing to be in the presence of perfection can often weaken the very object we long to be near. Thank you for coming to the Saturday workshop. I'm going to be talking... Uh, I want to give you a little bit of a, not too much, but a little bit of a framework for what this is going to be. Um, So think of this as part art history, part biblical study, part performance art, uh, (laughs) a little bit, it's largely storytelling. Um, So a little bit of my background is I uh, grew up in a small town in Indiana, a little farming community. Midwestern sensibility, and uh, so not not a town that that was kind of known for uh, an affinity for the arts. It was more a town that was known for an affinity for growing soybean, <laughs> and um, and I had an art teacher uh, who was just perfect for what I needed, uh, and she 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 had a, she was a huge fan. I remember of Vincent Van Gogh, Frank Lloyd Wright, and Georgia O'Keeffe. Those were her three like favorite artists, and she would take class field trips to the art museum, but she would give us counsel advice uh, about how to appreciate the arts, and one of the things that she said um, to us is she said, find an artist that you like, you know, so if you find, if you stand in front of a painting and you say, oh, I like this, even if you don't know why, just just figure out who it's from, Uh, and then pay attention to that artist. So if you go to museums, if you go, you know, and, and say you like Vincent Van Gogh, just when you go to a museum, go find Van Gogh. And one of the things that, that'll happen in the course of that is Van Gogh will then introduce you to his friends. You know, he'll introduce you to Cezanne and Gauguin and Monet because they share a room or they share a suite, you know, and so you'll get to meet his roommates and you'll get to walk up and see a Pizarro painting and you'll say, oh, I really like that. And so you get to know him. and and. And the other thing she said is, find an artist that you like and um, just pay attention to them for the rest of your life. You know, so, so uh, don't feel like you need to become an expert in that artist like right away. And know Some people are wired for that. I'm not. Um, I'm more of a slow burn when it comes to this kind of thing. But so I've been paying attention to Van Gogh since I was, I guess, for 31 years now, you know, since I was about 15. And um, even though I have no formal training in art history, like I wasn't an art major, I didn't take art history classes other than the gen ed ones that they make everybody take. Um, what I have done is I've loved Vincent's art and I've loved um, the art of others. And, and so when I go to art museums, I have a strategy. Uh, and it's I'm going to go see Rembrandt and Van Gogh. And then whatever else there's time for, I'll do that. And, uh, you know... Um, now there's, the list is getting longer. Edward Hopper's on that list. Um, Rothko, surprisingly, I, I, I don't know what it is about Mark Rothko, and I think mo- most Marth Roth- Mark Rothko fans. Now, if you don't know who he is, he paints squares, uh, color, fields of color, rectangles. He names them things like red number five, and it's just totally the kind of thing that, as a kid, I looked at and thought I could do that. But I, it's undeniable that it's, uh, for me anyway, at least a moving experience to stand in front of a Rothko, and I can't tell you why, uh, but it just is that way. Anyway, so so I am, so I've been doing a series of these talks, and I've, the Hutchmoot has given me a great opportunity to be able to present them as as more than just uh, essays, but as, but as presentations, and so I've enjoyed the work of putting the slideshows together and all that, um, but what I really want to do is, is I want to just take you through uh, kind of a meditation on the h- human desire and need to interact with perfection, uh, and I think, uh, I'll give you, I'll give you a, 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 a bias of mine 
and then a challenge for you to kind of tuck away in the back of your mind to, to refute later, and it's this. I believe that, and I know it's subjective, I believe that Michelangelo's David is the single greatest artistic achievement of an individual person in the history of man. I'm going to make a case for that sort of in the things that I say. Um, having said that, it is not my favorite piece of art in the world. It's not my favorite piece of art in the world, but I think the accomplishment of this particular sculpture is unmatched. Um, so that's a, that's, a, that's a bias that I'm going in with on this talk. As I'm talking about pursuing perfection, I'm holding forth this statue as the closest thing we've got to a perfect piece of art. Um, so, and even in that, it's not perfect. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read whatever, I'm going to read my talk, hopefully in a way that's not boring. You're going to see lots of slides. And at the end, we'll have some Q&A. Okay, so as you're thinking of questions and things you want to circle back to, I'll do my best to answer. I don't know if I'll know all the answers. Um, but, so this is called, Michael, uh, it's called Pursuing Perfection, Michelangelo's David and Our Hunger for Glory. All right. <clears throat> Without a doubt, this figure has put in the shade every other statue, ancient or modern, Greek or Roman. To be sure, anyone who has seen Michelangelo's David has no need to see anything else by any other sculptor, living or dead. Giorgio Versari, 1568. The stone, part one. The raw stone lay on its side in the back of the courtyard of the Florence Cathedral for decades. The church custodians and the locals had nicknamed the monolith the giant. The stone was hewn from the Franescritti quarries and the Appian Alps just above Carrara. The Alp, uh, Appian Alps are home to around 160, or, I'm sorry, 650 quarry sites, about half of which are still producing marble. The quarry produces, uh, the Carrera quarries produce more marble than any other place on the planet. Um, and it's been incorporated into buildings and monuments all over the world, which includes the Pantheon in Rome, the Marble Arch in London, if you've seen this, this is Carrera Marble, the Oslo Opera House in Norway, and the Sea of Crosses and Stars of David at the American Cemetery at Normandy. When you think of ancient Rome, they first popularized the use of Carrara marble. Uh, they fashioned columns and statuary and streets and architecture and buildings in this ivory and bone hue of this particular stone. So Carrara marble was the medium of choice for Italian Renaissance sculptors as well. Now the giant came from high up in the Appian Alps. So it was, it was a piece of rock, a piece of marble that came from, from high in the mountains. So it's not low, it's, it was an achievement to get there. I have to talk a little bit right now about, uh, and I risk, I risk losing you all, because I have to talk a little bit about geology, chemistry, um, and marble itself in particular. So, so hang with me, this is important, all right? Marble, what's that? I'm done, this is boring. Okay, so my, it totally is a bait and switch. Later I'm gonna talk about an exciting investment opportunity that has to do with marble. Um, so marble is a metamorphic rock that forms when limestone and other minerals like quartz and iron oxide and graphite are exposed to extreme pressure and high temperature over long periods of time. And what happens is the calcite crystals in the limestone, the, the calcite in the limestone crystallizes and it forms a denser rock made up of clusters of these hard crystals. So marble is a substance that's made up of, of clusters of hard crystals. And the different colors that you see in marble are due to the different minerals that are present in the limestone prior to recrystallization. So white marble is prized because of its, its purity. The structural integrity of a building material um, is measured in terms of compressive strength or tensile strength. So what tensile strength is, the ability to stretch, right? And so uh, a skyscraper, the steel used in a skyscraper has to have high tensile strength because it has to be able to move in the wind. It has to be able to give a little bit without snapping into compressive strength is just the opposite of that. It's, it's materials with compressive strength can withstand pressure that pushes down on it. And so you can, so that's why you would build buildings with stone, like the pyramids in Egypt are built with stone. That stone has a high compressive strength and it can withstand the pressure that is trying to compress it. Marble has virtually no tensile strength. So marble is not meant to sway or bend. Um, 
it has really high compressive strength. And so what happens is the crystalline structure of marble makes it strong enough to support the force of a mountain pushing down on it, but it's brittle enough to burst apart when it's struck with a hammer and a chisel. So, in 1463, there was an Italian sculptor named Agostino de Duccio, and he was commissioned. Oh, sorry, I had a slide for this. <laughs> so embarrassed. <laughs> See, compressive strength is that. Tinsel strength is, is that. There's also one called shear strength, which is which the arrows would be pointing like this. Like, will it, how will it snap if it's pushed along its other axis? Marble also doesn't have much shear strength. Um, okay. In 1463, there was an Italian sculptor named Agostino de Duccio, and he was commissioned by the Florence Cathedral, also known as the Duomo. Have any of you been here yeah. to the Duomo? Okay. Oh, I should also tell you, I've not seen David in person. What? I know. Sorry. I know. I thought, I thought that'd be a group response. Yeah, I know. <laughs> but it wasn't. <laughs> it wasn't, and there you were, and just the whole thing. <sighs> I'm going to be over here hoping you recover. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, I haven't. I haven't been. I, I want to go really bad, but I haven't. I haven't been. Uh, side note: I went to see uh, Van Gogh's Starry Night at the Museum of Modern Art in New York City, and it was a moment. And I was actually I, I went on a trip where I was alone in New York City, and I'm like, I'm going to the MoMA, and I'm going to go see Starry Night by myself, and I don't want anybody bugging me. Like this is a moment for me, right? And it was hard. It was hard to do because it's it's behind this this rope and you can't get super close to it and it was super crowded and it's kind of like you sort of shuffle through and that's not a painting that you shuffle past that's a painting that you camp out in front of and you know the the docents in the museum are real kind of edgy about anybody getting to it so I, I befriended in a very short amount of time the docent who was there um, and then asked him hey can I I just want to take a couple of pictures that are a little close I promise I won't touch it and I won't even get but it may look like I'm getting closer than you're comfortable with is that okay you know I have a I have, you know and he, he let me but but it was it was not the experience it's not the experience I hoped for because it was so crowded and it was so commercial and it was so just you know you've seen it now move on yeah. um, so uh, <clears throat> Anyway, so I've not seen David, but I've heard that that, that experience is not, not unlike that, that the lines are really, really long, that you have to buy a ticket, that it's for a particular entry time, and you get a certain amount of time there with the other people um, that you go in with, and you kind of shuffle around and take your pictures and go. I'll, I'll still go see they it at some point. Passes. Do they? So I'll get, yeah, so I'll get an early pass, and, and maybe we can all pitch in together to get, <laughs> to get me one, and... Um, Anyway, so, so uh, Duccio was commissioned by the Florence Cathedral, known as the Duomo, to carve one of a series of 12 Old Testament figures to adorn the buttress of the Duomo's front. So you see these statues right here? There's three, <coughs> six, nine, 12. Those. David was going to be one of those. So, uh, so what happened was, was uh, Duccio in 1463 was commissioned to make this. Um, Donatello actually began this series 52 years earlier. Um, in, in, in the early 1400s, in 1410, with a terracotta sculpture of David, and, or of, of Joshua. And David was going to be next, and Agostino de Duccio had won the contract to do it. Now, he didn't have any experience in selecting raw stone, and so he traveled to the Francis Gritty quarries, and he hired quarrymen to hew from, for him a stone that was 18 feet long and weighed over 24,000 pounds. Pounds. So this 12-ton block, it deviated from what the contract specified that he could do, because what the contract said he could do is he could use four separate stones, which could later then be fitted together to make this sculpture. But instead, Agostino chose to attempt the project in a single massive slab. That is not a picture of the actual slab. <laughs> With the block cut, he chipped away some of the stone that he knew would be shed in the sculpting process to lighten the monolith. He bored a hole between where the legs would be, and then he commissioned a small army of movers to haul the thing over land and sea to Florence. And so the giant was transported from the Carrera region up there, first along the western coast of the Ligurian Sea to Pisa and then up the Arno River to Florence. And the journey from the top of the mountain to the city took close to two years to get that marble that distance. In 1466, when the horses and the men finally carted the slob into the cathedral courtyard, people flocked to see just the block. 
No one had ever seen a single block of marble this large. It was an unfathomable fascination how this stone had come down from the mountain to rest in their midst. Human ingenuity and tenacity at its finest. It had been a thousand years since anyone had harvested a slab this size and moved at that distance. And people marveled at Augustino's achievement already. They marveled until craftsmen who knew something about marble began to take a closer look at Augustino's slab. Sam Anderson, in a New York Times article about this particular stone, wrote this. He said, quote, city leaders went to inspect the block and they were dismayed. It had not only been badly chosen, it had been badly carved. Augustino, as, a, as was traditional, had roughed out the block at the quarry, a quick whittling down to leave what was only necessary for the eventual statue. In doing so, however, he had compounded his previous mistake. The block had been strangely narrow to begin with, and Augustino made it even narrower. He created an awkward hole in its middle. And it was hard to see how this stone was ever going to become a plausible human form. Some believed it was ruined and that the city's investment was already lost. Augustino was fired and the block was abandoned and it sat there on its side getting rained on, hailed on, and fouled by birds, end quote. So the stone became a fixture for the residents of Florence. It was a symbol of both incredible accomplishment and also a symbol of unmet potential. And it lay dormant for about 10 years until in 1476, another sculptor named Antonio Rosalino was commissioned to take over the project. And he worked on the stone for a short time, but he didn't get very far until he too was dismissed from the project. And so the giant lay undisturbed for the next 26 years, exposed to the elements, hardening in the sun, becoming increasingly more brittle. Still, the unparalleled size of the slab and the investment that the city had made in procuring it <clears throat> caused it to remain a kind of asset in the minds of the people of Florence. And in 1500, the stewards of the cathedral decided that they would raise the fallen colossus to its feet and they would search once more for a suitable craftsman to take on the project of carving David from the giant. In 1501... A 26-year-old sculptor, 26-year-old sculptor, who had begun to make a name for himself a few years earlier when at the age of 24, 24, he presented to Rome his pieta, convinced the city officials that he should be hired to finish the sculpture Duccio started 11 years before he was born. And so on August 16th, 1501, the contract was awarded to Michelangelo. Part two, the sculptor. Michelangelo de la... Oh, sorry, this is so hard to say. Um, I'm just going to say Michelangelo. <laughs> Michelangelo was born in March 6th, on March 6th, 1475, in the little town of Caprizi, just east of Florence. Any of you ever been to Caprizi? Any of you ever had a Caprizi salad? <laughs> All right, you've, basic, you've basically been there. <laughs> Uh, his father worked in banking and government, and while he was still very young, Michelangelo's mother took ill. And so his father sent him to live with a nanny whose husband was a stonecutter at their family's quarry in Arezzo. And so the boy grew up around marble. Michelangelo cherished his childhood, saying, if there is some good in me, it was because I was born in the subtle atmosphere of Arezzo, and along with the milk of my nurse, I receive a knack for handling the chisel and the hammer. As with many artists whom history remembers as elite, Michelangelo had little interest in his studies. Mostly, he just wanted to create. He copied paintings he saw in churches, which he could do from memory, based on a single viewing only. And he sought the company of other artists. Noticing his son's passion for creation, Michelangelo's father agreed to let him apprentice at the age of 13 with the Florentine painter Gerladio. Gerland, sorry, Gerlandio. I got to learn these. Gerlandio. Is that how you say that? Gerlandio? There, Michelangelo learned the fresco technique that he would later use on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. Have any of you seen the Sistine Chapel ceiling? Yeah. Again, I have not. But we're taking that collection. <laughs> In 1489, at the age of 14, so he's 14 now. Michelangelo began to study classical sculpture in the gardens of the governor of Florence, Lorenzo de' Medici. Uh, 
His talent and his passion gave him access. It gave him access to Florence's social elite, which gave him then access to opportunity. And it gave him access to mentoring from some of the finest sculptors alive. And he took advantage of this opportunity. Michelangelo regarded sculpture as the pinnacle of art. He hated painting. Oil painting especially, which he described as, quote, suitable for women or for idlers, end quote. For Michelangelo, painting held little virtue. Landscape painting was nothing but, quote, a vague and deceitful sketch, a game for children and uneducated men, end quote. And portraiture was little more than, quote, flattery of idle curiosity and of imperfect illusions of the senses. In a letter to a friend, Michelangelo wrote, the more painting resembles sculpture, the more I like it. Sculpture is the torch by which painting is illuminated, and the difference between them is the difference between the sun and the moon. Did the man responsible for the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel with its 1,000 square meters of space and over 300 individual figures really despise painting this much. It seems that he did. Concerning this particular project, the Sistine Chapel ceiling, he wrote, this is not my profession. I am wasting my time. All for nothing. May God help me. We know, (laughs) yeah, sorry. So now if you're thinking, no, I think the greatest achievement of art in the history of humanity is the Sistine Chapel ceiling, Michelangelo doesn't. He thought he was wasting his time. Um, We know about his disdain for painting because he was willing to express it, Uh, even in the form of insult uh, to other painters uh, in this this process. And he did this with a thinly veiled jab at his elder contemporary, a little guy named Leonardo da Vinci, who held that painting was the nobler art. Michelangelo said, if he who wrote that painting was more noble than sculpture shows the same understanding in other things, as in that remark, my servant girl could do better. Yeah. Michelangelo seemed to take pleasure in provocation. When he was 17, he made a derogatory comment about a fellow student's work. That student responded by punching Michelangelo in the nose, disfiguring him for, oh, sorry, there's Da Vinci. Okay, and there's Michelangelo's broken nose. It would have been naive to imagine that Michelangelo didn't hit back. He had strong opinions and a hot temper, a combination which not only got him into many fights, but also was a combination that honed his artistic focus. Biographer uh, Gilles Nuret wrote this. He said, Michelangelo never made any mystery of the fact that his entire life, from youth to old age, he was consumed by passion. Specifically, his passion was for beauty. He had a passion for beauty. He was captured by it. And as it goes with a great many passions, his hunger for beauty would become for him a source of torment, an appetite he could never fully satisfy, though his attempts to do so would have this corrupting effect on his soul. Michelangelo wrote, if in my youth I had realized that the sustaining splendor of beauty with which I was in love would one day flood back into my heart, there to ignite a flame that would torture me without end, how gladly would I have put out the light of my own eyes. This statement may ring a bit dramatic, right? Just an artist saying something that's a little bit stronger than it needs to be. But beneath those words, in his story and the complexity of his life, is the complexity of his particular struggle. Historians have little doubt that Michelangelo was homosexual. His sexuality was present in his writing, it was present in his art, it's present in the accounts of his life, his personal life. And at the same time, there is also little doubt about his personal sense of obligation to God. And so his lifestyle that he lived, it afforded him the opportunity to indulge any appetite he wanted, which was something that he did. And his orthodoxy fought to bind his conscience to the love and the law of the Savior he believed held his soul fast. And as a young man, Michelangelo could not seem to shake either his faith or his carnal pursuits. And that was his torment which bore itself out in his work. As an artist, Michelangelo had unmatched ability. He possessed unmatched ability. He was a prodigy. His raw talent, combined with his cultivated skill, gave him the capability to render 
almost anything he wanted to make. He was that kind of artist. If he wanted to make something, he just could. What he delivered over the course of his life was a body of work that was at the same time divine and pagan. This is Moses, and he has horns. You can see there. Feminine and masculine. This is a woman with the body of a man, for the most part. Beautiful and violent. This incredible uh, deposition, the other, the, the other pieta, the Duomo pieta, they call it. Somewhere between the poles of the pagan and the divine were human beings. Yearning for glory, while at the same time consuming corruption with an insatiable hunger. The focal piece of Michelangelo's creative expression was the human form. That was, that was where he focused. He was captivated by the human body, by the male body in particular. In his depictions of people, we see his struggle to portray beauty that is both at the same time sensual and divine, powerful and vulnerable, masculine and feminine. Most of his subjects are male, many of them are nude, and almost all of them are specimens of physical perfection. Even his women bear the musculature of the male form. That's Adam and Eve. Nere wrote, quote, the human body as it emerged from the hands of the creator was Michelangelo's true medium of expression on the ceiling above the papal altar and everywhere else. Human body as presented in his work is a reflection of divine beauty. Human beauty, I'm sorry, is as presented in his work is a reflection of divine beauty and its contemplation leads the soul inexorably toward God. Michelangelo's artistic preferences were a matter for him of conviction. Greater than landscape and portraiture and all other subject matter was the human form. And above painting and carving and drawing and watercolor and every other technique was sculpture. And above clay and bronze or any other material which could be added to in the event of a mistake was the single unforgiving solid block of marble. One of the reasons that Michelangelo's David is such an incredible achievement is because as a kind of sculpture, sculpting with marble, you can't add to it. All you can do is take away. If you're working with bronze, if you're working with terracotta, you're adding, you're taking away, you can correct, you can flesh out the vision as you go. Not so with marble. You take away only, and that's it. And there's no correcting the mistake. So you have to get it right the first time. There in the courtyard of the Duomo, lying on its side, for 40 years lay the giant. And that giant was calling for the convergence of all three, a sculpture of the human form from a single slab. Across the metaphorical valley of completion stood a young Michelangelo, a master craftsman full of swagger and grit, tormented by an insatiable longing to behold and create beauty, stretched between the poles of the carnal and the pure, the pagan and the divine, and able to render from stone pretty much anything he wanted to make. He was this walking contradiction, spiritually complex, with an unusual natural talent and an untiring tenacity to practice, 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 practice. These were the qualities that prepared the young sculptor to deliver David from the giant. David, oh, part three, the shepherd. David is perhaps the most ubiquitous character in the Old Testament. Everybody knows at least a part of his story. So it's not that unusual that David would be one of the early statues commissioned from the set of the 12. It's, not only, it's also not hard to imagine that Michelangelo would have been drawn to the shepherd king because David's story and the complexity of his character as both an adulterer and a man after God's own heart aligned, at least in some ways, with Michelangelo's struggle between sensuality and devotion to the Lord. One curious detail embedded in David's narrative in Scripture, I love details like this, they fascinate me. One curious detail embedded in David's narrative in Scripture is the frequent mention of his beautiful appearance. When we first meet him, we are given three details that he was Jesse's youngest son, that he was a shepherd, and that he was, quote, ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. 
Then, a few verses later, after David has been conscripted into Saul's service, the king asks if there is anyone who can calm his tormented soul, and one of Saul's servants says, I have seen a son of Jesse of Bethlehem who knows how to play the lyre. He is a brave man and a warrior. He speaks well and is a fine-looking man, and the Lord is with him. And finally, when David faces off against Goliath, quote, the Philistine looked and saw David, and he disdained him, for he was but a a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. Three times we're given mention of his physical beauty. And it wasn't the only thing that was beautiful about him. Three times he's mentioned. Scripture, now, Scripture calls attention to the physical beauty of other men and women in the Bible, Sarah, Rachel, Joseph, Saul, Esther, just to name a few. But the recognition of David's beautiful appearance is unmatched in both frequency and in detail. There's like they're mentioning his eyes, like you, you know, his piercing eyes. So David's physical beauty was not his only attractive quality. Consider what else we know about him. He worked in the fields, fighting and killing lions and bears who tried to steal from his flock. He had mercy on his enemies, sometimes. He wrote psalms. He modeled confession and repentance. He oversaw building projects. His kingly reign was, in the minds and hearts of the generations to follow, Israel's Camelot era. Right? The people figured that they would recognize the Messiah because he would be more like David than David was. Women desired him. Men wanted to be him. He was a poet, he was a theologian, he was a musician, he was a lyricist, he was a warrior, he was a lover, he was an architect, he was a tactician. And along with all of this, and his innate physical beauty, Scripture says David was also a man after God's own heart. It's hard not to envy David. Even when he was young, and he was unknown. All the pieces for greatness were there. Consider the biblical story of his battle against Goliath. Before David had risen to any level of fame, his brothers were off at war. And Israel's king Saul and his army were dug in at the valley of Elah in the hill country of Judah. This is from 1 Samuel 17. And across the valley were the Philistines, and they were clanking their spears and their shields in the hopes that they might bait Saul's army uh, into allowing their anger to draw them out into the killing fields. And every day, their strongest, biggest warrior would call across the valley for someone, anyone, to step forward to fight them. His name was Goliath of Gath, and he stood nine feet, nine inches tall, and he was covered head to toe in bronze armor, his mail coat looking like the scales of a serpent glistening in the sun. And he carried a javelin on his back and a spear in one hand and a sword in the other. He was a monolith of a figure armed with iron and impenetrable as stone. And every day Goliath would call out, Why have you come for battle if you won't fight? Let's settle this man to man. Send over the best you've got and let him come down to me and the winner takes all. And Saul and his leaders were sick to their stomachs over Goliath's defiance and also over their inability to produce a single warrior who stood a chance against the giant. He was the perfect warrior, and they had no answer. And one day David came to the valley to bring supplies to his brothers. His father sent him with a kind of a care package from home. And as he arrived, his brothers and other soldiers were marching out for their daily standoff, and David followed, and he saw the giant step into the sun shimmering bronze, and and, and Goliath continued his taunt. Who will you send to fight me? Anyone? No one? Cowards? And David watched as his countrymen shrunk back in fear, and he could tell they had no fight in them at all. And this offended him. They were not just any army. They were the heirs of the Exodus. They were the tribes who defeated Canaan, Edom, and Moab. Egypt was swallowed in the sea behind them, and Jericho fell before them. They were not just some random clan. They were God's chosen people, and now they would shrink in fear over the taunts of one man? David said to the soldiers, Who does this guy think he is anyway? My paraphrase. (laughs) To stand there and defy the armies of the living God. David's older brother, Eliab, heard what David said, was insulted and chastised his little brother. Why are you even here? 
And who's taking care of the flock at home? You snuck over here because you just wanted to watch the battle, didn't you? And the others joined in the rebuke. But rather than wilt, David just walked past them and made his way directly to the king. And he said to Saul, listen, you don't need to keep doing this. I'll go fight him. Saul was incredulous. You can't fight him. You're a boy, and he's the baddest thing we've ever seen. David said, I know how to handle this. When I was keeping watch over my father's herd, a lion came to snatch one away, and I went after him, and I struck him, and I delivered the lamb from his mouth. And when that lion turned on me, I grabbed him by his beard, and I struck him again, and I killed him with my knife. And that giant across the valley is going to end up just like that lion. He defied the armies of the living God, and the Lord will deliver him to me. That's only barely a paraphrase, by the way. Saul recognized that the boy meant every word. And without a better plan, he said, Well, go then, and may the Lord be with you. And then Saul dug out his best armor and his weaponry, and he began to dress David in his coat of mail. And then the king handed David his sword, and David stood under the weight of the armor, and he gripped the sword, and he said, I don't know this battle gear, and this is not how I intend to fight. So he put it all down, and he picked up a staff, and he gathered five smooth stones from the brook of Elah, and he put them in his pouch, and he grabbed his sling, and he walked to face the giant. And Goliath regarded the boy for a moment, and then he laughed, and he said, really? Do you think you can chase me away with a stick and some rocks, like I'm a dog? But come on to me then, if you must. Know this, though, I will feed your flesh to the birds and the jackals if you do. And David answered, You come at me with your javelin and spear and sword, but I come at you in the name of the Lord you have defied. And before this day is over, the same God, that same God will deliver you over to me and I will strike you down and I will cut off your head. And you and your entire army will perish and every one of you will meet the fate of the birds and the jackals. And then all the earth will know that there is a God over Israel who doesn't need a giant sword or spear. The battle belongs to him. Goliath stood to his feet and began to make his way toward David and stop. Part four, the sculpture. (laughs) This was the moment. This was the moment that Michelangelo captured. David staring down his approaching foe. The story's all there. It's in his posture. It's in his hands. It's in his sling. It's in his vulnerability. It's in his eyes. The sling and the stone signal to us that David is looking at Goliath who is about to die. And the look in David's eyes tells us that he has no doubt. Traditionally, depictions of David in art portray him after his victory, standing triumphant over the slain Goliath. Other Italian artists before Michelangelo, like Veraccio, Bellano, and Donatello, show David standing over Goliath's severed head. The deed was done, the victory was in hand, lesson learned, not Michelangelo. For the first time ever, he chose to give us David before the fight. Nere wrote, Michelangelo, quote, abandoned the traditional image of David as victor, inventing in its place a symbol that unites both fortezza, strength, and ira, anger. So it's a uniting of strength and anger. Let's tour the sculpture together a little here. The marble, it looks soft and smooth like flesh. The shepherd is at the same time vulnerable in his nakedness and imposing in his size, standing over 13 feet tall. David is tense and angry. Michelangelo catches him at the peak of his focus. The warrior is alert but calm. He's equipped but patient. He's daring but confident. He stands in a way that conveys motion as though he's just shifted his weight or taken a step. It's a classical pose known as contraposto in which the figure stands with one leg holding the full weight and the other leg forward, causing the figure's hips and shoulders to rest at opposing angles, giving a slight S-curve to the figure's torso, a posture that conveys a sense of life. David stands naked and defenseless. This is not a detail in scripture. Uh, It's one that Michelangelo adds, that he's naked. 
But he does it to, to heighten the viewer's grasp of the vulnerability of David against his foe. Artists use this technique of exaggeration to convey scope. Uh, so what they will do is they will amplify what is seen in order to imply what is unseen. The French painter of the American West, Marc Maggiore, uses this technique uh, by painting skies with just incredibly dramatic cloud formations. If you, he, Mark, Mark is active on Instagram. If you're on Instagram, follow him uh, because his, his art is just amazing. Um, but you see this, this cloud formation, that's not real. I mean, it's, it's, we, you see things like that, but, but it's a very exaggerated cloud formation. But what he's doing is through the sky and the clouds, uh, though they're exaggerated here, what they do is they supply within the frame of his canvas, a sense of the epic expanse of the sky that one might see if you were standing there in person. So you're not seeing the full vista and getting the awe of what that would be like, and so he's concentrating it into one place. He wants to use, uh, he, he, he wants us to get a sense of the awe that the people in the painting must have felt as they took it all in. David is naked, but he's anything but weak. The determination on his face, the weapon in his hands, convey not only strength, but confidence that the victory is his. This was not a battle against flesh and blood. His right hand holds the grip of the sling, and his left hand holds the pocket of the sling. And the sling is draped across his back, which hides it from Goliath. So when Goliath is looking at David, he's not seeing the weapon at all. And so David's victory here is a reminder that his victory was one of cleverness more than brute strength. His approach was sophisticated, and it was elegant. In his book, David and Goliath, Underdogs, Misfits, and the Art of Battling Giants, have any of you read this by Malcolm Gladwell? It's a good book. Um, he, he suggests that we usually read this story wrong, in the same way that the forces of Israel misread the scene. We look at the great size of Goliath and the small stature of David, and we assume that David doesn't have a prayer. What we should be looking at, Gladwell says, is the weapons they've chosen to fight, or the weapons they've chosen for the fight. If we focus here, what we would see is that the fight was over before it ever started, and Goliath never stood a chance. Goliath's sword and his javelin and his muscles and his spear all depend on mid to close range combat. David's sling is a long range weapon, and a skilled slinger could take down an opponent armed with swords and spears and javelins without ever getting in reach of his enemy's weapons. And what's more, David believed that God himself would guide the stone. And so of course David was confident. He knew Goliath would never even touch him. He knew that the Lord would deliver the taunting scoffer into his hand, and so David would show up for the battle, and he would sling the stone, and the Lord would drive it to his mark, and that's exactly what happened, and it's a perfect story. It's the perfect story, a perfect enemy, a perfect youth, the perfect cast of a lethal stone, a perfect ending, and Michelangelo fit it all into the perfect statue of a perfect hero. Michelangelo wanted to work the stone in private, but because of its size, it could not be moved into a studio, and so after standing it up, builders constructed a roofless shed around the giant block where Michelangelo would disappear for days, hidden away in his work. It was a process of studying the stone, of learning its intricacies, its character, its flaws, its grain, its strength. He made a wax model uh, from which uh, to, to work, and he, and, he, and he used it as a model, and, he, and, he, and for two years he chipped away, two years he chipped away at the giant until David emerged. Once the statue was finished, except for some minor touches, Michelangelo would later, um, would later add, the city devised this plan to move the statue of David a half a mile from its workshop to the Piazza del Signoria. Historians wrote about the event, describing it as a stressful and difficult undertaking. Um, they had to dismantle the archway of the Duomo's courtyard to get it out because of its side. And the entire city monitored the progress. Uh, Vasari, uh, who was an artist and a historian, described it in this way. He described a, a, a strong wooden frame and a system of ropes suspending the statue. Uh, the, the scaffold was rolled slowly on greased logs. And it took... Four days and 40 men to move the statue a half a mile 
to its destination. And at night, vandals would throw rocks at it, trying to damage it. And so a guard had to keep watch over it, watch over it overnight. Uh, Luca Landucci, who was an herbalist living nearby. What do you do? I'm an herbalist. <laughs> I just live right over there. Um, he wrote down uh, the exceptional event, uh, event of the transport in his chronicle. He said this, quote, It was midnight, May 14th, and the giant was taken out of the workshop. They even had to tear down the archway, so huge he was. Forty men were pushing the large wooden cart where David stood, protected by ropes, sliding it down the town, uh, sliding it through town on trunks, end quote. After reaching its destination, it became apparent that there was no way, no way, that they would be able to lift the statue all the way up to the Domos Buttress. Besides, the wonder and the perfection of the piece would be lost on people if it stood at such a great distance. And so instead what they did is they decided to put David on a pedestal in Florence's public square outside the Palazzo de Signoria, the seat of the city's civil government, where the young shepherd's battle-ready stare was turned toward the Goliath of Rome. And it took almost a month to hoist him up onto his base. And Michelangelo kept working on the statue, putting on finishing touches. That summer, the sling and the tree stump were leafed in gold. A gilded victory garland was placed around David's neck. And weather and time have, have since destroyed the wreath and worn away the gilding. But towering over 17 feet high on its pedestal, Michelangelo's David became a symbol of the liberty and freedom for the people, displaying Florence's readiness to defend herself. And David remained there in front of the palazzo until 1873, when it was then moved into the gallery of the Academy of Florence to protect it from the elements and further damage. So that was about 140 years ago that they moved it inside. It's 500 years old. He stands there still today, almost perfect. Part five, we work with what we're giving. Everybody doing okay? Yeah. Okay, okay. We're close. We work with what we're given. No one is perfect. Not in this life. We live in a world of limits and we all run up against them and we all have them. If you're like me, you wish this wasn't the case all the time. You find the whole business hard to accept. But limits are a fact of life. They're part of God's design. Even our first parent, Adam, looked around when it was just him and he said, I need help. I need another. And Eve did not solve Adam's promise, uh, problem of limitations. God didn't put the man to sleep and then graft into him the rest of what he lacked. Instead, he took something out of him and made a partner to come alongside who was helpful but distinct. And the gift of Eve confirmed that this was how things were going to be. This is how things were meant to be moving forward, that we would not merely help ourselves, but that we would be given help and that we would be given to help. Sometimes we're given, uh, the help we're given requires us to adapt to a new course. The person who comes before us or alongside us has a personality that changes the rhythm of how we might move forward and work on our own. Perhaps they're faster than we are. Maybe they're more contemplative than we are. They think in concrete terms while we favor the abstract. They bring nuance into our otherwise rigid plans or structure to our hazy vision or economic reality to our dream. And sometimes we inherit the work of others and it falls to us to carry it across the finish line. Sometimes others inherit our work and build on what we've started. Lord, have mercy. One of the beauties I see in this part of God's design <clears throat> is that our limits and our need for others end up producing results, helpful, beautiful, unexpected results that none of us on our own would have known how to create or would have even thought to create. The story behind how Michelangelo's David came to be helps us see this. This statue began with limits. Michelangelo's, Michelangelo's statue would be limited to what the stone could accommodate. When he began, he had to adapt to the work of two prior sculptors whose creative choices and technical mistakes would determine, at least to a degree, how David would have to stand. And that stance would affect everything about the end result, not only the composition of the piece, but also its structural integrity. Michelangelo was given a block of marble, that others had a hand in shaping. Is this not a metaphor for life? We work with what we're given. 
none of us builds upon an untouched foundation. Many people, and their many decisions, for better or for worse, have played a role in determining where our feet are planted. And the chances are good that we are each in the process of shaping some aspect of a foundation upon which someone else will one day come to take their stand. Lord, have mercy. We work with what we're given, and we live in a world of limits. How different would Michelangelo's David have been if he had begun with a virgin stone that he had chosen? What artistic choices would he have made otherwise? Would that sculpture be as beloved as the one we've been given? Michelangelo chipped away at the stone set before him. He had to accommodate the vision of other sculptors. He had to accommodate the dimensions handed down by the stonemasons who first hewed the marble up, uh, up in the Tuscan Alps. He also had to accommodate the written word of scripture because the story of David was not his to invent. These constraints played a role in drawing from that stone the shepherd that he had read about and that he had imagined. And some of those choices had already been made for him. And had they not, we would not have Michelangelo's David. We would have something else. But that's not what happened. And so what we have is David. I cannot think of a single thing in my life that doesn't bear the touch of others. And you can't either. Of course, we wish some of those chisel marks never happened, the ones that draw from us pleas for mercy, the ones that kindle a hunger for the renewal of all things. But other marks have been necessary to give us eyes to behold truth and beauty and goodness that we would not have known otherwise. Living with limits is one of the ways we enter into beauty we would not have otherwise seen, good work we would not have otherwise chosen, and relationships we would not have otherwise treasured. For the Christian, accepting our limits is one of the ways we're shaped to fit together as living stones into the body of Christ. As much as our strengths are a gift to the church, so also are our limitations. Part six, seeking perfection in a world that is wasting away. There are cracks in David's ankles. For over 500 years, nearly 6,000 pounds of marble have been pushing down on David's legs. And yet he stands through centuries of sun and rain and tremors of thunder and more than a few attacks by vandals, one as recently as 1996 when a 47-year-old man named Piero Canada took a hammer to David's left foot, chipping his toe before being wrestled to the ground, not by police, but by other museum goers, David stands. The compressive strength of his legs of stone has held. But David stands on a bit of a tilt, adding torque to the pressure his weight puts down on those tiny fissures. Torque requires tensile strength and sheer strength, of which marble has very little. In almost immeasurable ways, those fractures are growing, working their way through the marble. And this deterioration cannot be reversed. Florence sits near active fault lines, which send tremors through the city. And as the city develops, construction equipment shakes the earth. And as the daily lines form outside of the academy, the footsteps of a mil million pilgrims per year from all over the world who have made their way to behold Michelangelo's masterpiece create almost immeasurable, but nevertheless measurable, near constant seismic activity around the statue's base. One day, David will fall. In all likelihood, he will ironically be taken down by a stone. Not by the force of a stone flung at him, but by the limitation of the very stone from which he is carved. He will collapse under his own weight because of his own flaws. One of the many fractures will cause a catastrophic failure in the compressive integrity of the marble, and the weight of his body will begin to shift, and pressure and torque and momentum will finish the job. In his article, David's Ankles, 
How Imperfections Could Bring Down the World's Most Perfect Statue. New York Times columnist Sam Anderson imagined the scene. He says this, quote, The first thing to hit the floor is his bent left elbow, the arm that holds the heroic sling. And it bursts along the lines of its previous breaks, old scars left over from the incident in the 16th century involving an unruly mob and a bench. And then the rest of the marble will meet the floor. And then the physics from there will be fast and simple, force, resistance, the brittleness of calcite crystals, the shearing of microscopic grains along the axes on which they align. Michelangelo's David will explode. End quote. Museum officials and government officials in Florence insist that the fractures are not growing and that the statue is positioned to minimize the pressure of the downward force of the 6,000 pounds. They do not believe the statue is in any grave danger. The biggest concern at the moment is earthquakes, which the consensus being that if an earthquake hit Florence, David would not be the only priceless piece of art to suffer. And that is a small comfort. (laughs) It's a small comfort, this reminder, that the world itself, which is wasting away, is utterly indifferent to preserving the finest art its inhabitants can produce. Just as the pressure and time compress and crystallize limestone into marble without ever wondering what we might make from it, Tectonic plates beneath the Earth's surface give neither David nor any of the rest of us a moment's consideration. Time and pressure are happening now. It will be the world that produced the stone from which he was cut that will ultimately be responsible for his destruction. The stone the quarrymen hewed from the mountain was filled with all kinds of imperfections before the first tap of the first sculptor's hammer and chisel. And though the marble was capable of accommodating the physical toll of the thousands of taps from the sculptor's tools, and even though it has managed to stand for over 500 years, supporting its own weight in all kinds of conditions, David is made of a material that is perishing. This reality was present from the beginning. The same time and pressure that gave us the stone from which David was cut could reclaim him at any moment. Still, we flock to see him. To enter the room where David stands, you have to pass through the Hall of Slaves, which is a passage that is lined with the unfinished works that Michelangelo began. These half-finished Hercules struggle, curled up and frozen in their prisons of stone, pleading for the recognition of the masses who cannot help but look away because there at the end of the hall stands the most perfect work of art ever achieved by one of us. We are drawn to beauty. And we instinctively know that somewhere, somehow, such a thing as perfection exists. We seek both beauty and perfection at great expense of money and time. Beauty we can find. It's all around us in a million different forms. Perfection, on the other hand, eludes us. It is as though, to borrow a phrase from Meister Eckhart, perfection inhabits our true home, but we are the ones walking in a distant country. We're like revenants. We're on the other side of the veil. And on the other side of the veil is a tangible glory of unfailing perfection, but it's just out of our reach. And so we've given ourselves to the pursuit of making copies from the dust of the earth, compressed by time, crafted by pressure, but conceived by something more than mere imagination. Our best attempts at achieving perfection this side of glory come from an innate awareness that it not only exists, but that we were made for it. I close with this. I came across an image, a detail, in my research that I can't seem to shake. David has a gloss The gloss of David's exterior is in part human skin. For 500 years, the patina covering David's body has been composed of a combination of Florentine dust and the detritus 
of a hundred million tourists coughing and shuffling before him, shedding their skin to give him his. We have added to Michelangelo's work. We've polished him smooth by our very presence. We who bear the image of God have taken this man of stone and given him a dusting of flesh. How much more will we who are bound for glory shed the limits and imperfections of these perishable frames for bodies which will forever bear up under the eternal weight of glory. Until then, we save our vacation days and we plan our itineraries and we make our way across oceans and over mountains and through cities and down the long stretches of highway that span the countryside to take our place in line to catch a glimpse of the deeper glory that we know we were made for. We go to the Louvre in Paris, the Met in New York City, the Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam, and the Academy in Florence. We go to the Grand Canyon of the American West and the Giant's Causeway of Northern Ireland and the forests of East Asia and the islands of the South Pacific. And we go to a pizza place in Brooklyn and a pub in Oxford and a vineyard in the Sonoma Valley and a cafe in Paris. Why? All to join the carnal to the divine. All to get closer to glory. Thank you. <laughs>